Presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. Okay, this is our fifth in our series on uh, the idea of uh, the subject, the topic of, uh, of God's providence that I've entitled, Just a Coincidence, and we're talking about, uh, this is sort of a primer on the providence of God. We're not doing a, a complete study on God's providence, but we've, what we're doing is just looking at some little uh, vignettes in the scripture to see how God's providence operates. Remember that uh, God's providence, and well, I put it, I did put it in your notes again. Uh, God's providence is defined by, or at least providence is defined by Webster this way, and this is in your notes, active foresight or foresight accompanied with the procurement of what is necessary for future use. And then the secondary definition is the care or benevolent guidance of God or nature. And that is, remember the, uh, the word itself, providence, comes from the word provideo. And the, uh, the prefix uh, means uh, before. And the, the, the word video means to see. So it's the idea of seeing before, but not just simply seeing before. It's the idea of knowing what's coming. There's the, uh, there's the preparation of everything that we need for what's coming. And that's what we've seen in the lives of, of the biblical characters that we have been, uh, we've been looking at uh, to date. And today we're going to be looking at, at, an, at an incident in David's life. David is a, a very popular character with, uh, with most of us. And uh, I've entitled it, When God Heads You Off at the Pass. Uh, <clears throat> usually that's a term you hear in cowboy movies or something, westerns. Uh, you know, let's head them off at the pass. Now, what does it mean if you're going to head somebody off at the pass? Yeah, you're going to sort of cut them off. You're going to stop them along the way. They're going somewhere, and you're trying to... Uh, you're trying to uh, to apprehend them and stop them. And we're going to see God um, heading David off at the pass in this particular incident. Just by way of uh, historical background, I've, I've drawn our little simplified uh, map on the, uh, on the board up here again. This circle at the top represents the Sea of Galilee, or as it was known in the Old Testament, the Sea of Kinnereth. And then this line would represent the Jordan River, and this body of water down here would be what? The Dead Sea, that's right. Um, the city of Jerusalem's here. That's really not going to play in our uh, study today. The, one of the cities that we hear about a lot in the news today is that of Hebron. And Hebron's located at this point here, somewhat east of the Dead Sea. And we're going to, uh, what's going on is going to take place in an area called Maon, which is just about 10 or 12 miles south. Uh, of the uh, of the little settlement there of Hebron, it's a time at which David is fleeing from Saul. Does anybody remember why David would have been running from Saul? Yeah, Saul was trying to kill him. Remember that uh, uh, Saul was the first of the um, monarchs of the United Kingdom, but Saul turned his back on the Lord, 
and as a result, God raised up another uh, another king. Uh, he was the, uh, in fact, David was the king elect. He was not the king in fact yet, but uh, he was the king elect, and it became apparent to Saul that God had uh, placed His Spirit on David, and David was going to be the heir apparent, was the heir apparent to the throne. Uh, Saul didn't like that, and he was doing everything he could to get rid of David, using him, trying to use him for javelin uh, practice, among other things. And so David fled, and in the process of fleeing, remember that he had a number of uh, disheartened, disinterested, uh, disgruntled, uh, discontented people joined themselves to him. There were uh, about 600 men, some of whom had wives and families. And since there were a lot of caves, remember there's a little city called En Gedi uh, that's located right here along the eastern, I'm sorry, along the western side of the, uh, of the Dead Sea. I think I said eastern earlier. Western side of the Dead Sea. Uh, there were a lot of caves along here and uh, and it made for a great hiding place for David and his, uh, and his uh, merry band of uh, men and their families. And so that was one of David's favorite places for hiding, and certainly uh, Saul is after him trying to kill him. Uh, clearly there were a lot of pressures of, uh, from leadership, of leadership that, was, uh, that David was facing. How do you provide for all, all the resources that these 600 people plus their families are depending upon you for? Uh, what, they had all kinds of needs, uh, financial needs. They had food. I mean, just everything you can imagine. Plus the, just the, the pressure of knowing that someone is out to get you. And there's a little passage that I want us to use to kind of set the tone for our thoughts today. Before we look at 1 Samuel 25, I want us to look at an incident that occurred in 1 Samuel 24, and it's in that small type in the left-hand column of your notes. And it really illustrates David's self-control and his faith in the Lord uh, in spite of the presence of Saul, in spite of all of the pressure that he was feeling from Saul, David seemed to be handling it quite well. Uh, notice what it said. This is from 1 Samuel chapter 24, beginning at verse 2. It says, So Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there. Now this is where I was talking about on the western side of the Dead Sea around in Gedi. Uh, a cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Uh, apparently, nature called, and you know, there's, a, there's an old saying, one of the people that you never put on hold is nature, when nature calls. So he goes in to relieve himself in one of these caves. Now again, we see, we see the providence of God right away. Out of all of the caves that are there alongside this, uh, this area along the Dead Sea, Saul wanders into a particular cave and there are some people inside that cave that Saul doesn't realize is there. He went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. Now, of course, their eyes were accommodating the dark and they could tell when this person came in. They may not have been able to tell right away who it was, but within a few moments they would have been. But would Saul have been able to see people inside that cave when he wandered into the cave? And the answer is no, because he's dealing with the desert sunlight, 
uh, his pupils would have been very constricted and it's kind of like, uh, well, it's like driving on a bright day like this and then you go under that long underpass down there by the old Royal Crown Cola building and all of a sudden you're thinking, man, I feel like I'm going to run into the wall because I can't see where I'm, where I'm going. Uh, so anyway, that's kind of the way Saul was. He didn't realize he was there. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, and notice what they say, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I'll give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Now, it's interesting to note that God never said that. Uh, they were just trying to help God out. And besides, if you get rid of Saul, what's that going to do? That's going to relieve all of the pressure that David and his merry men are feeling. And David can go ahead and assume the throne. So they're not just trying to help David. They're trying to help themselves as well. It says, David crept up unnoticed. And again, unnoticed because Saul's eyes had not accommodated to the darkness of the cave. David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed. Now, what does it mean to be the anointed of the Lord? Well, that means to be the chosen one. And certainly Saul had been chosen by the Lord to be, uh, to be the leader of Israel. But of course, as I said earlier, Saul had turned away. He said, For the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, speaking of Saul, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. Notice he uses the term twice. <clears throat> and with these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. In fact, when he went out, he was none the wiser. He didn't realize a piece of his robe was missing. He didn't realize he was in there with a bunch of guys with knives and swords who would have cut his throat at the drop of a hat. Uh, and it's not until he gets well out toward his troops that David comes to the mouth of the cave and yells at him and that Saul realizes that his life had been in danger, but uh, David had spared his life. And so what we see again here, and the point that I want to get to, because it really sets the stage for 1 Samuel 25, is we see David, in spite of all the pressure that he's feeling, himself fleeing from Saul, the pressures of people, and some of which I'm sure were self-imposed, but also the pressures of people, who were looking to him for leadership, looking to him for provision, uh, having to hide these folks, having to worry about all the, um, the banditos down in this area, as well as Saul's troops who were after them. Uh, here would have been a good opportunity to rid himself of all of that, and yet David shows great self-control. He doesn't do that. He says, no. He says, when it's, um, and later on, David will say, he will say, well, when it's the Lord's time to remove Saul, uh, he'll either, he names a number of scenarios, one of which is dying in battle, and of course that's exactly what happened to Saul. He said, but it's for me, I'm not going to lift my hand against him. So here's a guy who shows real self-control. I want to read you a verse, it's not in your notes here, but just listen for a moment. Uh, if you want to make a note of the reference, it's Proverbs 25, 28. And here's what the, what, what the writer of Proverbs says. Like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. What's the purpose of the walls of a city back in that day? To protect them. And when those walls were broken down, 
then they were vulnerable to attack. He said, a, a person who does not have self-control is like a city whose walls are broken down. Their protection is gone. There are all kinds of things that can invade, all kinds of problems that can occur. And that's what we're going to see happen in the life of David, and yet we're going to see the providential care of God going on during all of this time. There are three main characters in the story. Uh, one uh, is named Nabal. His name means fool, and he acted real foolishly. He was a very uh, wealthy rancher. He had a really lousy disposition, as we'll see as we read the story. Uh, the second character is his wife, whose name is Abigail. She's a very lovely woman, apparently has a wonderful attitude and a wonderful spirit as well. And then the third character is the person about whom we've been talking, and that's uh, David. He is the king-elect. He certainly is a fugitive at this point. And it just so happens that this guy, Nabal, has a big sheep operation down here in the area of Maon, just south of Hebron. And because David and his merry men have been hanging out down here, they have uh, essentially been kind of a shield to all of the Bedouins who might have come through this area and who might have robbed uh, uh, Nabal of his sheep. Uh, in fact, he didn't, hadn't been missing anything. So that's kind of where, that's sort of the background of the story. Remember that David has just demonstrated a tremendous amount of self-control, and then something happens. 1 Samuel chapter 25 your text on the right. The, again, the background is all that we've been talking about. The prophet Samuel has, has just recently died. Because of that, any restraints that King Saul might have felt uh, not to go after David are completely lifted, and he's making David's life as miserable as he can. David is on the move and hanging out in this area a lot. Verse 1, it says, David moved down to the desert of Maon. A certain man in Maon who had property there at Carmel was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep which he was shearing in Carmel. Now the fact that he was shearing them would indicate what time of the year is this? The springtime, that's right. You wouldn't do this in the late summer because you got the fall and winter coming up and you want those rascals to have their coats so that they can survive. And so uh, in the early springtime, though, obviously their coats would have been the fullest. That's the time that you shear them. His name, verse 3, his name was Nabal, which I said earlier means fool. Uh, his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband, a Calebite, that is, he was from the, uh, from the family of Caleb, was surly and mean in his dealings. Now, we're going to see just how surly and mean this rascal really was. While David was in the desert, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So he sent ten young men and said to them, Go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, Long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all that's yours. Now I hear that it's sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, that is, the, this band of David and his men down here, when your servants uh, were with us, we did not mistreat them, and the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants, and they'll tell you. Therefore, be favorable toward my young men, since we come at a festive time. Now, it's important to, to understand this. We need to understand what this festive time was. 
just like when you bring in your crops, that was a time for celebration because you're celebrating the bounty that God has given. Sheep shearing time was a festival time too because this, you know, you're shearing your sheep, you're going to take all that wool, you're going to sell it, you're going to make garments out of it, all kinds of good things are going to happen that's going to bring you uh, some uh, financial security as it were. But uh, at that same time, because it was a time of celebration, it was also a time when uh, it was customary, at least according to the, uh, the things that I have read, it was very customary at that time for the person, in this case Nabal, who owned the operation to willingly give a few of his flock to the people around who had helped to sustain him during all of these winter months and who had protected him. Uh, so this is not protection money that David is, uh, is, you know, this is not Chicago and he's not demanding protection money from Nabal. This is a very customary thing. It's, uh, it's uh, something that went on all the time and he's just asking Nabal, wouldn't you like, since this is a, this is a time for sharing, a time for uh, rejoicing over and you haven't had any losses at all, uh, don't you want to share? Uh, again, verse 8, Therefore be favorable toward my young men, since we've come at a, a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David. Notice, now obviously David is not his literal son. This is sort of a term of endearment where he's saying, you know, I've acted like a son toward you, looking out for your best interest. Give your servants and your son whatever you can find for them. So he's just saying, hey, it's time, it's that festival time, it's time that sharing goes on. When David's men arrived, they, uh, they gave Nabal this message in David's name, and then they waited. Now, what were they waiting for? That's right, waiting for the response. That's right. What kind of response is he going to get? Now, if Nabal was a mean and surly dude, what kind of response do you think they're going to get? That, uh, just exactly that kind of response. That's right. Nabal answered David's servants, Who is this David? Now, you, now, how well known was David at this time? Listen, this, this guy was real well known. Remember, uh, one of the things that had brought him real popularity was the fact that he had killed Goliath and uh, he had led Saul's army a number of times against the Philistines, had had wonderful battles. But it was when those, uh, when those sweet young things with the tambourines came dancing along after one of the battles singing, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands, that's when the trouble really got started. And Saul said, to me they have ascribed thousands, to him they have ascribed tens of thousands. What can be next but the crown, but the throne? And he got, uh, and so from, it was really at that point. So, and the point I'm making, I've got to be careful not to get off target here. The point that I'm making is that David was a well-known character. So he's, when he says, who is this David? Uh, he's not operating on a lack of information. In fact, as the next sentence shows, who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? So he already knew about, uh, about David's pedigree. He knew that he had come from the family of Jesse. What, he's, what, is, what is Nabal essentially doing? Yeah, he's using some sarcasm. He's also saying, who are you? Man, this is my flock. These are my goats, my sheep. I put in all this work. Who you think you are coming up here asking me to give you something? You haven't done anything for me. Well, the truth is, is he had. He pro 
David and his men had been like a wall against these marauding Bedouins during all of this time. He goes on to say, many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Notice, he's, he's insolent, as Sarah said. He's, acting, he's speaking sarcastically. He classifies David as a runaway slave. Essentially, what he's doing is publicly insulting David. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men coming from who knows where? <clears throat> now, don't you know that the modern-day union folks would just love some uh, supervisor like this? They would love to take this guy to task. So, essentially, they've just, he's just publicly insulted David. Now, notice what happens. They were waiting, the men were waiting, waiting for a response. They just got it. Verse 12, David's men turned around and went back. When they arrived, they reported every word. I bet they did. They didn't skip a word. David said to his men, put on your swords. Whoa. Now, what does that indicate? Yeah, something's about, there is something ominous about to happen. Now, here's the guy who just the chapter before showed tremendous self-control. But all of a sudden now, he's saying, guys, strap on your swords. Now, we're not, we're, we're not sure quite yet what he's about to do, but we know it's something ominous because it's, uh, it's apparently got to do with fighting. They put on their swords, and David put on his. About 400 men went up with David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. One of the servants told Nabal's wife, Abigail, David sent messengers from the desert to give our master his greeting, but he hurled insults at them. Yet these men were very good to us. They didn't mistreat us, and the whole time we were out in the fields near them, nothing was missing. Night and day they were a wall around us all the time we were herding our sheep near them. Now think it over and see what you can do because disaster's hanging over our master and his whole household. He is such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. They say, look, he's awful. And so what, what are these servants doing? Well, they're talking with Abigail, trying to get Abigail to do what? That's right, to talk to her husband, Nabal. Mm, Abigail lost no time. Let me tell you, Abigail, is, she is just a great, wonderful picture. Abigail lost no time. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep. What does it mean to have a dress sheep? That means you put bonnets on them. Oh, no, no, that's right. That means they're ready to eat. Five dressed sheep, five seahs, uh, seahs about a bushel, five seahs of roasted grain, 100 cakes of raisins, and 200 cakes of pressed figs and loaded them on donkeys. What, why all this food? Why is she taking this food? That's right. What, what have you got coming towards you? She doesn't, she doesn't realize it yet. All, she, all she's got is the report from one of her household servants. But she knows that there are some people out there who are angry, and they're apparently also hungry because they've been thwarted uh, in trying to, uh, trying to get food. So she's going to try to mollify them by bringing them food. Then, verse 19, Then she told her servants, Go on ahead and I'll follow you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. Now, it doesn't tell us why. But why do, why do you suppose she wouldn't tell her, her old, mean, surly husband Nabal what she was doing? Yeah, he, that's right. I think you're right. I think he'd just, he'd just stop her. He'd say, don't you just take all that stuff off those donkeys? I've already told those boys we're not going to give them anything. 
So she keeps her mouth shut. Verse 20, As she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, there were David and his men. How many men were coming? 400 descending toward her, and she met them. Now notice, now again, here's this guy who has just demonstrated all kind of self-control in the chapter before. But now he is headed down the ravine with 400 angry men right behind him. He's got blood in his eyes and he's got a sword strapped on his side and so do all of his merry men with him. How do you account for the fact that you can, be, that you can show self-control here and then all of a sudden you're ready to go ballistic over here? Well, I think one of the answers to that is in 1 Samuel chapter 24. He's in dealing with Saul personally. He said, you know, he's the Lord's anointed. And the Lord set him up there. And if the Lord wants to get rid of him, the Lord will take him out of that situation. And it was not so much a public insult. But in this case, in 1 Samuel 25, we are dealing with a personal insult on his part. And he said, there is no way that this guy is going to get away with this. In fact, notice what he has just been saying, verse 21. David had just said, now he had just said this to whoever was in earshot of those 400 men. David had just said, it's been useless all my watching over this fellow's property in the desert so that nothing of his was missing. He paid me back evil for good. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. Now we know what the swords are for. What does David have in mind? That's right. Not only get rid of Nabal, but here's a guy who is ready not only to rid himself of Nabal, but who else? All of the males. He's going to cut off all of his, uh, all of his offspring. Now, again, you, you, here's a person who at one point is showing self-control, and now he's off the map. You know, you and I do that same kind of thing. We do it all the time. Now, we may not strap on our pistols, and go out and say, well, now, let's see if I can just find so-and-so, and I'm going to, kind of like in, the, uh, in that old Clint Eastwood movie, Unforgiven, where he says, I'm going to kill you, and I'm going to kill your family, and I'm going to burn down your house, and he just goes on and on and on about all these terrible things he's going to do. That's what you and I do. You know, there's sometimes when we seem to handle things real well, and we say, well, you know, God's really in control of this. And then all of a sudden, a little incident, well, I guess it's not such a little incident, but an incident like this occurs where somebody gets under our skin and, somebody, and there's a little bit of personal insult involved with it, and all of a sudden we are ready to not just write them off, but wish them ill, and that's exactly what he's doing. You know, we just, it's easy for us to forget. Uh, we, you remember we talked about Jonah just a week or so ago. It's easy for us to forget that, that the grace that we receive from God, He didn't owe us. God doesn't owe any of us anything except a one-way ticket to the pit. But God deals with us graciously as His people, and God intends for us to deal graciously with others. 
and then these opportunities for us to demonstrate grace and say, well, boy, I'm not sure I deserve this kind of treatment, but, well, you know, I guess God has a plan in all of this. And no, we don't handle it that way. We just go ballistic like David did right here and strap on the swords. Verse 23, when Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. Notice, first thing she does is she, is she, uh, she does homage to David. She assumes, uh, particularly for that day, uh, a place of respect. She, she prostrates herself on the ground. She is, she is, as it were, seeking to make amends for the insults of her husband. Verse 24, she fell at his feet and said, My Lord, let the blame be on me alone. Now, is that a gracious thing to say? I mean, you know, you got this old surly, mean character. Now, you know he'd probably been giving her a hard time for years back there on the ranch. And most of us, if we'd been Abigail, we said, David, uh, I, I didn't know whether you could find the place or not, but I happen to have a map that I've drawn for you so you can find him and let me... Sh just, and let me, uh, there's also a diagram of the house, so you won't have any trouble finding Nabal when you get there. No, she didn't do anything. She said, let the blame be on me alone. It's a, it's a wonderful, redemptive kind of picture. Uh, it, re it should remind us of our Lord Jesus, who although all of his people are sinful, and he himself is sinless, what did he do? He went to the cross to purchase our salvation, to buy us back. And to buy us back out of the marketplace of the slavery of sin. And it's a, it's a beautiful picture of redemption. Let the blame be on me alone. Uh, remember, that's what Jesus did as he hung there on the cross. All of the sins of all of God's people was placed on the Lord Jesus. And through faith in him, what happens? All of the righteousness that he was, because he kept the law perfectly, and he was perfectly pleasing to his Father, all of that righteousness is imputed to the believing sinner so that when God, when God looked at Jesus on the cross, what he, what he did not see was the sinless son. What he saw was a representative substitute, the sacrifice, the one who had taken all of our sin upon himself and he killed him there on the cross. Remember, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the Father turned away from him. And yet, when Christ looks at us, when God looks at us, and he sees us clothed in the righteousness of Christ, he says, Come to me. He gathers us to himself. We have access to him. We can, we can come boldly to the throne of grace. That's, that's the picture that's being portrayed for us right here. My Lord, let the blame be on me alone. Please let your servant speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. May my Lord pay no attention to that wicked man Nabal. He is just like his name. His name is fool and folly goes with him. He says, I know he's, he's acting like a fool. But it's for me, your servant. I didn't see the men my master sent. What, what, was, what, was, the, what was the first thing she's saying here? You know, when, when you sent your delegation of ten men, David, up there to the house to, uh, to speak to Nabal, if I'd known you were there, I'd have done something about it. But I didn't realize you were there. And uh, notice, too, I, I think it's interesting, the argument that she makes 
for David to be merciful to her household. The first argument that she makes is she, is, uh, is she says, consider the source. Uh, who was it that said all this? It was Nabal. What does his name mean? His name means fool. He's acting like a fool. Consider the source, David. Don't bloody your sword over somebody like this guy right here. And notice what uh, she, she begins, she continues to, uh, uh, to make her point and, uh, and to plead her case. Verse uh, 26. Now since the Lord has kept you, my master, from bloodshed. Well now, how's the Lord kept him from bloodshed so far? I mean, here's a guy, he's got his sword strapped on, 400 guys with swords behind him, and he's talking, he just got out of his mouth. It's just useless, it's just hopeless. I've done all this for nothing. I'll tell you what, he and all of his offspring are going to be dead before sundown. Who stopped him? Who came out to meet him? Abigail came out to meet him, but what does Abigail say? Verse 26, Now since the Lord has kept you, my master, from bloodshed, what does Abigail realize? She realizes that it's the Lord who is using her now in David's life. Notice she continues to use these terms of deference. Your servant, my master, since the Lord has kept you, my master, from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, may your enemies and all who intend to harm my master be like Nabal. Be like Nabal how? Be foolish. May all your enemies just turn out to be fools, David. Verse 27, And let this gift which your servant has brought to my master be given to the men who follow you. Please forgive your servant's offense, for the Lord will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my master. Now, what is a dynasty? Yeah, it goes on and on. It's a kingdom. Remember in uh, one of the things, uh, it hasn't happened yet uh, chronologically in the Bible, at, uh, at least at this point, but one of the things that happens is in Second uh, Samuel chapter 7, uh, there is what's known as the Davidic covenant where God meets with David. And one of the things that he promises him is that one of David's offspring will be on the throne uh, in perpetuity. It will never, ever end. And we know that, that uh, the immediate fulfillment was Solomon. But the ultimate fulfillment of that is whom? Is Jesus. That's right. And that's the point that she's making right here. Please forgive. She's, she's, again, pleading for forgiveness. The Lord will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my master. Why? Because he fights the Lord's battles. Who's David about to fight? Whose battle is David about to fight right now? David's battle. That's right. Notice this sweet, gentle woman, and let me tell you, sharp as a tack, is just laying down all the reasons why David needs to defer from what he is doing. But she's not through yet. She says, even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, David knew about that because he'd been dodging Saul for a long time, the life of my master, that is David, the life of my master will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. Uh, this bundle of the living thing, what she's doing is she's referring to a tradition that the Jews followed that any time they moved, 
one of the things that they would do is they would take a cloth and they would put all their precious valuables inside that cloth and they would bundle them up, wrap them up and tie them up so that they would be safe during the move. And she's saying, David, that's what God's done with you. He's, he's, he's protecting you. He's put you in this place. He's bundled you up. He's going to keep you safe. Don't do what you've got in mind to do. But the lives, of, now notice the contrast of that, but the lives of your enemies he will hurl away from the, uh, as from the pocket of a sling. Now, that may have been a reference to what incident? Yeah, David when he slew Goliath, that's right, and David would have picked that up right away. Verse 30, she's not through making her point yet. And this is probably one of the most important things that she's got to say. When the Lord has done for my master every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him leader over Israel, Abigail is affirming that what's going to happen to David? He is not only going to be the king elect, he is going to be the king in fact. He is going to take the throne. He has a, when, when, he, when, the, when the Lord has done for my master every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him leader over Israel, my master will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or having avenged himself. Vengeance is whose? The Lord. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. David's out here ready to fight his own battles for his own ego's sake and just because of, I'm sure, his own frustrations. And this sweet woman, Abigail, who apparently is just meeting David for the first time, is just pleading with him. And she finally says, David, don't do what you've got in mind doing for conscience sake. One day you're going to be the king. God's going to sit you on the throne. You're going to have that lasting dynasty. And the last thing you need, David, is, is to have your conscience torn up by the fact that you've avenged yourself, that you weren't fighting the Lord's battle, that you were fighting a battle of your own over your own injured pride. And then she finishes the statement there, the end of verse 31. And when the Lord has brought my master success, remember your servant. And incidentally, now this is not in our story today, but that's exactly what David does. Because eventually, remember what's going to happen. Uh, remember in this area right down in here, the Philistine, you have the, uh, the five big Philistine uh, cities and what happened was that Saul and all his troops were down here and they'd been swarming and swarming after David. There was, a, uh, there was like a, uh, a, a political empty spot uh, that, uh, that occurs up here in the north. And so what the Philistines do is they take their chariots north and when they make that move, Saul and his troops down here hear that they moved up there. Then Saul goes up here and it's at this point at Mount Gilboa it's where Saul and Jonathan and the brothers uh, are killed by, uh, by, the, uh, by the Philistines. And, uh, and David then is made king over Hebron where he uh, serves as king over Hebron for six years. And then at the end of that six years, all of Israel uh, wants David. And for the next 34 years, he, de he uh, rules as king over the entire nation of, uh, of Israel. And he says, 
and the and the point is is that she's making. He said, "The Lord's going to bring you success. Remember me when that happens." One of the things that happens, and again, it's not in our study today, but uh, uh, after David becomes king at Hebron, before he before he becomes king over everything here at Jerusalem, uh, one of the first things he does is he sends for Abigail, and Abigail becomes his wife. Not his first wife, but uh, one, of, uh, one of several wives. So, uh, verse 32. Notice David's response to this. David said to Abigail, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, here's a guy who's a minute ago saying, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill everybody associated with him. I mean, he's ready to do it all, and now David's tune has just changed after this wonderful uh, intervention by this, uh, this great woman. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. David recognized that Abigail was there by divine appointment sent by whom? Sent by God. That's right. This was no coincidence that she just showed up. This was a providential act of God by which David, with blood in his eyes, was headed off at the pass by God. But the person that God used was an attractive, intelligent woman named Abigail. Verse 33, May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Notice he, he acknowledges the fact that he's fighting his, he was ready to fight his own battle. Avenging myself. My pride was wounded. Otherwise, verse 34, Otherwise, as sure as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives who has kept me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. Isn't God gracious the way he works? Then David accepted from her hand what she had brought him. Notice, and remember in the east, when you take food from somebody, you don't attack that person after that. You are, at least for the moment, you are... Uh, you are admitting that there is sort of a, uh, at least a peaceful coexistence that's going on between the two of you. Uh, <clears throat> says, uh, then David accepted, verse 35, David accepted from her hand what she had brought him and said, go home in peace. I have heard your words and granted your request. What was the request that she was asking? Please forgive the offense of my foolish husband. And that's exactly what David did. He forgave that. You know, what does the Bible tell us in Colossians chapter 3? It says that you and I are to forgive as God for Christ's sake has forgiven us. Now, how many of us deserve to be forgiven? No, not any hands go up over that one. None of us deserve it. And yet what we do is we withhold forgiveness sometimes from people in spite of the fact that God has forgiven us so much. Remember, it's like that old story of the, uh, of the, uh, of the servant who had gotten into his master for, oh, some 10 or $12 million, and the master found out about it. Jesus told the story and said, I'm just going to sell the servant, his family, cut my losses, and be through. And the, and the servant found out about it, came running in, fell at the master's feet, and said, if you'll just give me a chance, I'll pay you back. There's no way he could have paid back that 10 or $12 million. 
And the master said, I forgive you the debt. Now, did that servant deserve to be forgiven? No, not at all. But the master forgave him. The forgiven servant went out and found one of his buddies who owed him $18 and said, I want my money now. He said, well, if you give me a little while, I'll get it for you. Well, there's a better chance of him getting that $18 than it was that other guy getting 10 or $12 million. He says, oh, no. So he had the guy arrested, his family, everybody, all, everybody related to him thrown into prison. The word got back to the master, and the master called the forgiven servant in there and said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that, and you were unwilling to forgive this small debt? And he said, turn him over to the torturers until he pays back every dime he owes. Now what, and then Jesus said that really scary thing right at the end of that in Matthew 18, where he said, and he turned to his disciples and said, so shall my heavenly Father also do to you if you don't forgive from your heart. Does that mean God's going to French fry his people who harbor unforgiveness? No, it doesn't mean that at all. But what it does mean is it means that you and I are going to be tortured we're tortured at one of the things, you know, I do a good bit of counseling. And one of the chief reasons that people come to me when you push comes to shove is that their lives are filled with bitterness and resentment over things that have happened to them and they have never, ever come to grips with the fact that they need to forgive. And we all do that. When Abigail went to Nabal, he was in the house holding a banquet like that of a king. He didn't have a clue anything was going on. He was in high spirits and very drunk, so she told him nothing until daybreak. Never pays to talk to a drunk. Then in the morning when Nabal was sober, his wife told him all these things and his heart failed him and he became like a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Praise be to the Lord. No, not because he died. But praise be to the Lord who has upheld my cause against Nabal for treating me with contempt. You see, I didn't have to take my vengeance. God dealt with the man. He has kept his servant from doing wrong and has brought Nabal's wrongdoing down on his own head. You know, one of our natural tendencies as human beings is to just go too far. You've been listening to Focus on Truth the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax deductible. For a free copy of our monthly newsletter, Glimpses of Truth, or other information about the ministry, write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.